Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, quick note before the show begins. I just found out that Indigo is extending the pre-order sale for our new book, The Canada Land Guide to Canada, coming out on May 2nd. They're extending the sale for one week. So until next Sunday, you can get the book for 50% off. That's just $16 if you go to indigo.ca and search for Canada Land. Check it out. Today's episode is brought to you by Hover.com. Hover provides domain names for your ideas and email addresses for those domain names. They simply are the solution for this. Get 10% off your first purchase by going to Hover.com slash CanadaLand and use the offer code CanadaLand. I do not understand Quebec. I don't understand Quebec's media, Quebec culture, Quebec music, Quebec comedy. I don't understand French. So I'm kind of fucked from the get-go. For almost 10 years, I lived in Quebec. 10 years. Every day of which I would walk the streets of Montreal not understanding. And I kind of liked it. I liked being a foreigner. I liked a lot of other things about it too. And pretty soon I loved it. I fell in love with Montreal, which is pretty common. And for years, I thought that I would never leave. I planned on spending the rest of my life as a Montrealer. But, like most Anglos I knew, even the ones who spoke French perfectly, 
it didn't work out. Living as an outsider, feeling like I would always be an outsider, it just left too many doors closed. So I left. The years that I spent there influence how I think about Quebec, for good and for bad. How I think about it, and how I talk about it. How could it not? But when I talk about Quebec, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I still don't understand. And it shows. This show needs to do a better job of covering Quebec's media and covering Quebec. And to do that, I really need to speak to some Quebecois people. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Arlen Thompson, Rob Hadley, Greg Giles, Jake Creighton, Danielle Potier, Elizabeth Stones, Philip Smith, and Rick Upton. Rick, why did you decide to be awesome? I decided to be slightly awesome a couple of years ago when I first realized that your theme song was stuck in my head. I became a little bit more awesome a couple of months ago after I heard you say you wanted to make sure that you could pay Canada Land staff a fair and reasonable wage. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is also brought to you by Hover.com. Did you know that a domain name is registered every second and 100 million Hover domain names have already been registered? When you think of an awesome idea, you need to find it a great domain name before somebody else snatches it up. Hover is the easiest way to quickly buy and manage your domain names. Free who is privacy to protect your contact information. No confusing upselling, just domains and email addresses. 
We use Hover. We've never had to use their support. It's so simple. If you do, no problem. It's no wait support. They don't put you on hold. They don't transfer you. It is there to help you every step of the way. Plus their new connect feature lets you connect your domain name to your website in just a couple of clicks. Spend less time on your domain name and more on your big idea and get 10% off of your first purchase by going to hover.com and using the promo code CanadaLand at checkout. Once again, it's hover.com slash CanadaLand, promo code CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. It is not too late to sign up with FreshBooks and use it for tax season this year. It is the easiest way of compiling all of your information. It is the easiest way of sending invoices to your clients. It is the solution. It is like an accounting department for freelancers and small businesses that can't afford accounting departments. They've rebuilt the thing soup to nuts. The mobile app is a breeze. Expense tracking is so simple. Time tracking that's easy too, and spitting out reports that your accountant can easily and quickly convert into your tax return, that is also something that FreshBooks makes stupid simple. Another way in which it will likely save you money on your tax returns. It gets you paid quicker, it lets you get back to the work that you need to be doing and that you love to do. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand right now. Have a look. Give it a whirl. It is absolutely free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. 30-day free trial if you do become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you and you will be doing this podcast a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. Colette Brain, I'm a professor at Laval University in Communication and a director of the Center for Media Studies. My name is Les Perrault. I'm the Montreal Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Uh, I've been a correspondent here for about nine years at the paper and uh, did about five years before that for the Canadian press in Quebec. Welcome, both of you. I should start by saying that I'm bringing to this discussion just a huge collection of prejudices, assumptions, anecdotal impressions that I've turned into hasty conclusions all about Quebec. And I don't think it would be helpful for me to pretend otherwise. So for the purpose of our discussion today, I will be your ugly Anglo. I hope I'm not your angry Anglo, but I'm certainly an ignorant Anglo, and I think I share a lot of the impressions about Quebec and a lot of the things that have become so controversial as the rest of Canada defines and maybe incorrectly defines Quebec. So the best thing I could do is just expose my prejudices to you, and you can tell me if I've got the right idea or not. That's very honest. Works fine for me. Let's begin with Andrew Potter's column. The big question that I've yet to read any kind of explanation to that satisfies me, or, or really even any explanation, is why was it okay for Richard Martineau, who is a columnist with the Journal de Montréal, to write far worse but very similar things about Quebec? He wrote, old people in Quebec steep in their own shit. Civil servants are paid to do nothing. They give fines to motorists stuck in the snow, but they release bandits on obscure points of law. The place is a bloody mess, but boy, do they ever laugh. The province is officially the country's poorest. Debt is $280 billion, but so what? As long as the Canadians make the playoffs, everything's okay. That seems to me almost a more vicious criticism of Quebec than the one that Andrew Potter made in McLean's. And yet I don't believe that Richard Martineau was censured by politicians or by the public the same way that Andrew Potter was. Well, Jean Martineau is a columnist. He's not an academic. That's a big <laughs> distinction starting off. Uh, of course, I've read people saying that the fact that he's from Quebec makes it acceptable for him to say that. So you can criticize the family if you're part of the family, but if you're perceived as an outsider, it doesn't work. But a lot of people in Quebec really do not like what Martineau writes. He's been writing the same kind of uh, very vitriolic commentary for a while. I think there are things in there that merit reflection, but I'm certainly not a fan of his style. 
And during the student unrest in 2012, he had death threats. So I think just saying that what Richard Martineau says is okay is an overstatement. But the fact that he's not an academic and he's not the director of an, an institute for the study of Canada or of Quebec, I think that makes a big difference. I agree with Colette, and I would just add the word McGill to everything she just said. Andrew Potter represented one of the uh, Anglo-Bastion Canadian establishment institutions of Canada, and uh, Charles Martineau writes for a tabloid and is a well-known crank, to be honest. Uh, Everybody knows he's there to outrage and provoke, and so that's factored in when people read his stuff. Yeah, there's a little bit of the boy who cries wolf. I mean, he's been doing it for such a long time that people have just learned to phase him out. People who are offended by what he writes and says. That's not an excuse. It seems that you accept that there is a double standard. Would you call it a double standard or just a different situation? You're talking about an academic who has an institutional role as director of an institute. I think when you're a director of an institute, I direct a center. I have a board to respond to. When I write things, when I write op-eds in my own name which do not reflect the center. This column, this uh, opinion piece that Andrew Porter wrote, he wrote his title underneath, which means he was writing as director. And I think that's a problem. It it may seem a minor detail, but uh, in the academic world, it's a big difference. Colette, that part I understand, and I understand that there's not one one answer, that it's a complicated answer, the differences between these two columns. But part of why the response was very different, if I heard you correctly, was not simply that they have different roles, a columnist versus an academic, but also, and I know Les, you brought this up, that this was somebody outside of the family, that this was uh, an Anglo, and that this was McGill, and that this was McLean. So th- also, just by judging by what he wrote, uh, someone who did not know Quebec very well, someone who hasn't lived here for very long or who hasn't really taken the time to try to make a more in-depth analysis. And coming from an academic as opposed to a tabloid columnist, I think we would expect a little more. All of that sounds absolutely right to me. I guess what I'm asking is, was it different for him because he's an Anglo? Probably, yes. You know, you say double standard. I have no problem saying there's a double standard. In fact, I'll say there's probably about 20 standards, (laughs) maybe more. And uh, and each factor plays a role in uh, how things are interpreted. A person who's been around a long time, who uh, people recognize as a person who's covered Quebec for a long time, uh, can get away with certain things, or get away with isn't even, uh, you know, it's taken in a different way when it's uh, by someone who's familiar, if if it's someone who's well-respected. And I know Andrew Potter is well-known in English Canada, but he's not really well-known in in, uh, Francophone Quebec. And so that factors into it, too. Don McPherson wrote the exact same thing. It would be received differently. Don McPherson, mm-hmm. the longtime Montreal Gazette columnist, who you know speaks very good French and is a regular on uh, television and radio in both languages, you know, if he wrote the same thing, it would be received differently too. The way that I took it was almost like Martineau is sort of your cranky uncle at some family gathering who's maybe had a few too many drinks and is a bit embarrassing, but you tolerate him because he's part of the family as opposed to somebody from outside the house looking at you and and hurling epithets at you. I guess the thing that takes me aback with this case and took people back in the past with J.J. McCullough or with the McLean's story about corruption in Quebec or Jan Wong is that it seems to be acceptable for elected officials in Quebec to just publicly decry and rebuke Mm -hmm. and demand uh, reparations of some kind or, you know, basically to to use their positions to decry journalism. There is a lot of discomfort around that kind of reaction, yeah. I'm more familiar with those cases coming from Quebec and less so in other provinces. The assumption, the impression, the prejudice I take into it is that it seems to be okay for politicians in Quebec to attack the press. 
Well, I don't think it's okay personally, but I, I do see that kind of behavior happening. Uh, that's the part that I'm most uncomfortable with. Of course, the public opinion reaction is not very pleasant to watch play out on, on social media and the kind of attacks and insults on freedom of expression and people who think that, you know, Andrew Potter should lose his job and should be, you know, tarred and feathered and thrown out. That's just not acceptable. For Jan Wang, it was very extreme in terms of the kind of political condemnation. And there was a similar case for a francophone um, when Yvon Michaud, he's known now mostly as a, help me, less a... They call him the Robin des Bains. He's a shareholder activist who goes to uh, board meetings and raises hell about corporate governance and that sort of thing. Right. So that's just to know who he is. But in this instance, he said something about the Holocaust and that, you know, the Jews were not the only ones who had suffered or something like that. And that statement was politically decried. And there was a, a motion at uh, the National Assembly to condemn this, this statement. And this just seemed very extreme. And this is a francophone and someone who is respected in the community. So it's not only... For Anglophones, but I think it is harder. Uh, it's harder, I think, for an Anglophone to also be considered uh, part of the community. I'm originally from Manitoba, actually born in Nova Scotia. I arrived in Quebec as a master's student, and just the fact that I used to work at Radio Canada and don't really have an accent meant I just kind of blended in right away. And I know it's harder for an Anglophone, especially if they don't speak French. And for Andrew Potter, I've read his work. I'm very impressed with his his career. And I don't think this was typical of him. And I do sympathize because of the reaction, which was, in my sense, extreme, especially the political reaction. They should have just stayed out of it, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree that we have, a, in Quebec, we have a propensity for the official overreaction. <laughs> uh, there's a few things at play. Uh, one is that actually politicians here are very accessible to the media. I'd say more so than a lot of places. The legislature sits a lot more than most provinces. And so... There's a lot of reporters in the National Assembly. You would not believe the range of questions your average cabinet minister will face as he walks into the daily caucus meeting or out of the sitting of the National Assembly, you know. So that's one thing is that they, they tend to get asked about all kinds of things and they tend to answer. And I would just say, too, that I agree there's a greater propensity to that sort of reaction in Quebec, but it's not unique. You know, I remember I used to work at the National Post years ago on the prairies and I arrived at the uh, Winnipeg Bureau Within months of my predecessor uh, writing a piece that described Saskatchewan as the Mississippi of the North. And I could tell you that the reaction in Saskatchewan was about the same as what you'd see here. I, I'm, again, I don't know if there were any motions in the legislature, that sort of thing. But the premier certainly weighed in along with uh, everyone else. There's also a media dynamic. The fact that there are so many media, and as you mentioned, in Quebec and national media, and the fact that what happens in Quebec City as opposed to what happens in Regina, gets a lot more play on national media, including English language media. So that, that kind of changes the dynamic as well. That's a big part of this, I think. And it's contradictory. The fact that you have these powerful legislators blasting the media suggests that it's not a friendly environment for a rigorous and robust and aggressive media, but it's the most aggressive media. As, as I understand it, again, I'm just speaking from my impressions. In every sense, you seem to have a ton of very aggressive investigative reporting. You've got a tradition of tabloid news journalism in Quebec. It seems like, if anything, there's more of a discourse which belies this idea that the powers that be crushed down on the press. It seems like, that, like there's some crossed wires there in how we're perceiving the Quebec media. Well, it's possible that it's easy easier for them to make these kinds of statements just because the press is so robust. It doesn't frighten them. There hasn't been, in my recollection, any kind of strong statement against any Quebec media recently. Maybe they're a little bit more uh, complacent in that regard, but I don't think anyone in the press is afraid of Philippe Couillard or afraid that, you know, the Quebec government will 
wield censorship upon them. I don't think there was any kind of fear of that. Running against the national media in Quebec for Quebec politicians is a well-worn tactic. I've covered four or five elections now in Quebec, and I don't think there's a week that goes by that some candidate will mention uh, some outrage that has been performed on Quebec uh, by the national media. And, uh, you know, I, I remember in the last election campaign that Jean Charest ran in, Jean-Francois Lisey uh, had the gall to give an interview to the Globe and Mail. So the very next day, Jean Charest holds his news conference and is sure to mention that Jean-Francois Lisey, the uh, current leader of the PQ, who was back then a member of the legislature for the party, uh, dared to reveal his master plan to, to the Globe and Mail instead of to Quebecers, you know. <laughs> so that's another dynamic that's at play here. Is it's very easy to use the national media as a boogeyman in Quebec. And I think that you're not really just pointing, you know, the symbolic value of that is not just Quebec versus the national media. It is an us and them thing. That is about positioning Quebec in contrast to English Canada, isn't it? I'd say there are two kind of opposing polarized views that Quebec is like the spoiled child versus Quebec is an oppressed minority. And I think the reality is, in all cases, is somewhere in between those two things. The case of Andrew Potter really put it in perspective because there is just no taking into account outside of Quebec the fact that this is attacking a group, a minority group, which could almost be considered hate speech. I mean, in some cases, some people really went to that conclusion. And this was not at all taken into account outside of Quebec, except some very rare cases. I think it's problematic. I know that there's a tradition within the separatist movement and within Quebec culture in a Canadian context, and there's certainly no shortage of historical examples of oppression. But then when we get into racism and minority statuses within Quebec and insider-outsider issues within Quebec, I think that the rest of Canada has a tougher time perceiving of Quebec as an oppressed minority. That idea doesn't go over as well as it might within Quebec. Potter's piece was very flawed, and that I think has been recognized by everybody. But what has not been dealt with is the data within it, which you may have been able to build a much more solid piece out of. Yeah, there's actually an article on that in Le Devoir today. There's actually recent data that just came out that's just been analyzed on philanthropy and uh, volunteerism in Quebec. So this is an issue that is addressed in the Quebec media that has been addressed, that's been addressed in scholarship. But uh, Potter just didn't take that into account. And neither did I, obviously. Did this coverage in the Quebec press deal with the statistics around trust? That's what I found most alarming. And just to give our listeners a summary of it, it showed that through all these mechanisms by which academics measure trust within a society, Quebec was the lowest trust province in the country, including not just do you trust people who speak different languages, do you trust your fellow citizen, but even by a very small margin, do you trust members of your own family? Mm -hmm. Quebec was lower than the rest of Canada by like 2%, which, you know, I don't know what the significance there is. But what I read about this is, this is just one analysis, and I, you know, it would have to go further, was that the fact that we are a minority actually is an indicator, uh, is a factor to consider that people who are part of minorities tend to have less trust in general. And this has statistically been demonstrated. So that could be part of the explanation, perhaps not all of it. But I haven't seen much, you know, it's always good when a scandal like this breaks out that you actually look at the issues more seriously as opposed to just the scandal itself. What do you think, Les? Did those stats jump at you? Do you think that they were used correctly or were they as alarming to you as they were to me? Some of the stuff I've known for a long time, like the thing about philanthropy is an interesting one because... 
I've done some stories on that in the past and in the fairly distant past now that I stopped to think about it. And, you know, there are theories about it surrounding the uh, role of government in society. And, uh, you know, in Quebec, we do, I think, have a tendency to believe that some of the functions that philanthropy perform in other jurisdictions should be performed by government. You know, so that changes how people approach things like giving money and uh, volunteering their time. Uh, as for the trust stuff, I have a hard time sorting out what exactly that means. You know, if you ask two different people how much they trust their brother-in-law or their neighbor down the street, I, when you start getting the percentages of, uh, you know, 30% trust versus 35%, I have a hard time discerning what that all means. You know, it's all very relative and I have a hard time uh, discerning a uh, broader meaning uh, from some of that stuff. There's also problems when you ask questions in French and English, the, the language can be an issue as well. But uh, I don't know in this case. You know, it seems so direct. Most people can be trusted. You agree or disagree. In the rest of Canada, 58% of people agreed. Most people can be trusted. It was 36% in Quebec. And then this one, which supports certain assumptions that people make about Quebec and race politics and racism in Quebec, the same data suggests that people in Quebec are less likely to trust people who speak a different language. 57% of Canadians say they trust people who speak a different language, 41% in Quebec. Now, what we make of that is a separate issue, and the academics behind that have since pointed out that those trust levels tend to be lower in oppressed minorities, mm -hmm. which is consistent with the idea of Quebec as such. But if we're trying to talk about what distinguishes Quebec from the rest of Canada, those seem like relevant pieces of information. I would be interested to read more and maybe I should be doing more reporting on it myself. Because, for example, if you live in a part of the country where you rarely come across someone who speaks another language, which is most of English Canada, you know, does that affect how much you trust a person who speaks another language than if you live in Montreal and come across someone who speaks a different language just about every day of your life. I don't know what it means personally, but I'd be interested to read more about it. Language is at the heart of a lot of this. Colette, it's interesting you talk about working at Radio Canada and this insider-outsider status. I knew a lot of people who, unlike me, took the time and effort to become completely fluent in French, and many of them were fellow journalists. None of them that I can think of broke through and built careers within French language media in Quebec. This is anecdotal stuff. Does that wash with your conception? It really felt like it was a closed shop. It felt like people who were bilingual could come and participate in the English media, but it didn't work the other way around. That's an interesting question. I know there's a, an expectation of accent and just fluency, but there is an issue of lack of diversity in uh, Quebec newsrooms in general. I mean, La Presse just announced for the first time that they're uh, giving a scholarship to people who are allophone for internships. And this, to my knowledge, has never been done. Of course, Radio-Canada has a policy for diversity, but uh, the other media, and, and I think it's documented that francophone newsrooms are less diverse in general, not just in terms of, you know, integrating minority language uh, people, but also minorities in general. So that's an issue. And what you spoke about earlier about the data on other languages, I think, the problem is not just the English language, but also people who are from other backgrounds and non-Francophone or Anglophone backgrounds. I think there's a problem there as well. It's always hard to compare Quebec to other provinces for the reasons that Les stated as well. But I think this is an issue that needs to be addressed in Quebec, and there are efforts being made, but I think we still have a long way to go. 
The accent issue is interesting. I remember when I was finishing journalism school in Saskatchewan in the 1990s, hearing from Francescois friends, French-speaking Saskatchewan people, that it was very hard to get a job at Radio-Canada in Saskatchewan with your French Saskatchewan accent. It's a little different in, in Winnipeg, but I was from there. I never even would have applied for a job in Montreal. I mean, I wouldn't have considered at that time, just because of the exams as well, what they require in terms of knowledge of Quebec popular culture and just Quebec politics. I just didn't feel that at that time I could compete. And additionally, you know, I had a friend who's a Francophone Quebecer who speaks perfect English, but with an accent, who had a hard time with the CBC here in Montreal. Uh, again, it's 20 years ago now. This is all changing now. I was struck the other day, there's a commercial with a former hockey player named PJ Stock, who is a regular on French television here now. And he has a, an amazing Anglo accent. And, you know, his language is peppered with Anglicisms. You know, he's sometimes a bit hard to follow, but everybody loves him because he's got such a lively personality. And I think that's something that probably didn't happen 25 years ago. But you see more and more of that mixing now, which I think is a very good thing. Looking broadly at Quebec's media, the first thing I was struck by living there is like, wow, unlike Toronto where I grew up, where 95 plus percent of the influence of the media, it just feels like we're getting either directly American media or Canadian versions of American media. There was so little to distinguish it. And then I moved to Montreal and really realized it did feel like I was in a completely different country. And I was amazed. The faces of celebrities on magazines were all completely unknown to me. And everything, of course, coming in through a filter of my terrible comprehension. But, you, you know, you hear the loudest things. I formed a picture of Quebec media as, in various shades, tabloidy and gossipy. I was very aware of the racist cartoon of Jan Wong as that controversy played out. I know that blackface endured until very recently, might still be going on in Quebec comedy. I know about French-Canadian talk radio shock jocks. Recently, there was a defense mounted on talk radio of whoever sent the severed pig's head to the mosque, defending that that is a valid expression of speech in the wake of the mosque shooting. So things that just you would never hear in the airwaves. I'm aware that stuff is happening, but I know that I don't have the context. I'm aware of a really strong right-wing media in Quebec as well, and a lot of expressions about both arguably Islamophobic expression, racist communication, stuff that wouldn't happen anywhere outside of uh, rebel media or something, seems to be part of the daily diet. But I'm not getting this firsthand, and I'm not getting it in context. Do I have the wrong impression? Well, no, all that exists. Yeah, when you put it like that, it sounds really horrible when you live in it, kind of filter it out more. But a lot of that, yes, is due to the strength of Quebec and the Quebec media system. If you're familiar with the Sun and all used to be part of Quebec or outside Quebec. I think it's perhaps even worse, but that's certainly a strong presence of those kinds of content in Quebec and things that would not be acceptable in English Canada and certainly not in Toronto in terms of, you know, racism and content that is just offensive to people uh, of the Islamic faith. But that's not the whole picture. You talked earlier about the fact that there's very strong uh, investigative reporting and, you know, there's Le Devoir, which curiously, you know, houses some of the most progressive voices and some of the most analytical journalism that we have, but also some opinions that are closer to the right wing. But I think they see that as their mandate to reflect all of that. You know, we're also offended in Quebec by sometimes Don Cherry or, or Rex Murphy or people like that, but they seem to have a more marginal place in the media environment, perhaps. It's hard to get a general view because, of course, I tend not to consume those kinds of content. I live in Quebec City, so I know about some of the worst things that come out of the shock jock or the talk radio shows. 
and it is concerning. Part of this links too to the, what we were saying before about uh, diversity, right? Like diversity is a big challenge for all sort of legacy Canadian media, I think. And I think the challenge is even greater to some extent in Quebec because even just immigration is a different phenomenon in Quebec. And there wasn't as much immigration in Quebec in the 1960s as there was in Ontario, for example, in the 1960s. And so diversifying society in general is lagging behind, I think, in some respects. You mentioned blackface, Jesse. You know, that's a real tricky one when I have to cover that issue because you will find very respectable, liberal-minded people who you would never consider racist in your encounters with them who will defend blackface. I think it is partly an issue that for a long time in Quebec, there wasn't sort of activism confronting that sort of issue the way there was elsewhere in Canada. It's also a hard issue to explain because of the history of it. But the history of it is considered to be, I'm definitely not defending blackface. This is something I find offensive, but it's like because we're a minority group, we're allowed to do these things because we're oppressed too, or I'm not exactly sure how it works, but it seems to be more acceptable and more tolerable to have these opinions. But I think things are changing, though. Younger people are definitely less acceptant of these practices. It's such a difficult one to talk about. And we, of course, are three people here who do not accept blackface. And I think we're three people who are very critical and don't think it's okay. But I think that we're trying to represent the argument of people who do. My understanding of it, and you can disabuse me of this if I got it wrong, is that you kind of pointed to it earlier. The argument is, we're not in the tradition of American minstrelsy blackface. We have our own blackface <laughs> comic tradition here that isn't offensive in the same way. And we won't be dominated by this other discourse that has its roots in American racism and slavery. We got our own thing going on here. It's not as bad here. And we don't accept. That almost feels like an allegory for this larger question of like a refusal to accept what is considered okay or not okay. Having that dictated to Quebec and Quebec saying, no, we've got our own way of doing things. This means something different here. Back off. Absolutely, Jesse. In fact, my first month in Quebec City working at the National Assembly for the Canadian Press, someone made an offensive joke and I raised an objection. And his lecture to me was, we don't have your history with black people here. Patently false. Maybe it's been lived less intensely among whites in Quebec. <laughs> but certainly there's a history of anti-black racism and slavery. And, and ongoing discrimination to this day. Just the fact that you know, there's a proposed commission on systemic racism. Okay, the word systemic seems to confuse a lot of people, but, you know, it's being spun as you're insulting us, you're calling us racist. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But I would say that it's not a monolithic view. It's not something that's shared by the entire population. I think there's a growing group, and especially younger Quebecers, who are just not acceptant of this view. But then it all plays in into the, the nationalist sovereigntist project which is seen as we need to defend the nation, we need to defend the language, we need to defend our identity, and then the danger of slipping into right-wing nationalism or just catering to that kind of fringe is really, in my view, very dangerous. It's not that there isn't anti-Black racism, a history of it and a presence of it in Quebec, but it's like anything else. It's distinct. It's its own special flavor, the argument goes to the history. I guess it is about putting up a barrier. To go back to my example of my former colleague in Quebec City, I mean, when I worked there, I think there were well over 100 people working in the National Assembly Press Gallery, and I don't believe there was a single black person in that National Assembly Press Gallery at the time. And to my knowledge, today there is one. So it's a willful blindness as much as anything, I think, and uh, and 
prejudices that go sort of unchallenged because, you know, other white people like me are often lazy about confronting the racism of others. It really is a trust thing. My position on this has to do with when I moved to Montreal right on the heels of the referendum and it was just falling apart and I saw so much of a vanishing Jewish Montreal that was once the cultural and intellectual capital of Jewish Canada that had been abandoned and there was incredible tension between the French and Jewish populations in Montreal. You know, whose culture? This idea of remembering your culture and protecting a culture and being in a city where I was aware that uh, when my grandmother first came before coming to Winnipeg, she was in Montreal working in the garment industry. This is an important place. And I saw synagogues being repaved as Collège Francais. There's a larger narrative here where we all kind of overlap. And who has the right to criticize when it comes to both recognizing these problems within Quebec, but this total defiance of being criticized from without? I feel like that at its heart is a trust issue. I would agree with that. And I think I heard on your last podcast, you guys were talking about that CBC uh, History of Canada thing that came out, right? A thought that that provoked in me was, I'll have conversations with my Francophone friends where they'll talk to me about the history of relations between Francophone Quebec and Canada and the rest of Canada. And and you try to sort of say, ah, things have changed, you know, uh, that disrespect of the 1960s and 70s is no longer there and that sort of thing. But there's always things that come up like that CBC show mm -hmm. where all the French people are depicted as dirty and slovenly and crazy and uh, British people are depicted as fine, upstanding gentlemen. There's always stuff like that there to remind them. And so, yes, there is a mistrust. And the response to the controversy that, oh, well, this is show is targeted to English Canadians as if we just accept this fragmentation, this distance. Yeah, we're not one country. We're countries or something. The enduring solitudes, it really seems to just play itself out. It cycles again and again and again. I mean, I am really interested if it gets misrepresented because it's almost because there's such a complete culture at play every day in Quebec, a self-contained complete culture that if you're just going to cherry pick the worst of it, you could paint a really terrible picture. And it's the fact that it's a complete culture, which is the biggest difference. We can't force it in the rest of Canada. We keep trying to and assert a narrative and assert some sort of national identity, but it exists for real in Quebec in a way that it doesn't in the rest of Canada. I mean, I think that like the truth is inclusive of all of this. You know, the other big charge and my other big prejudices about corruption in Quebec. Like, I just know that that's true beyond the Charbonneau Commission, beyond the fact that the mayor of Montreal is in jail. Is he in jail yet or has he just been sentenced to jail? I believe he's in jail. Yeah. He's in jail. I mean, Rob Ford was never sent to jail. I know about the mafia ties in Montreal. I know about the bikers. People I know who've gone to set up businesses in Montreal dealing with the unions and, and the city find it completely corrupt. Like all of those epithets or characterizations seem accurate to me. And yet I feel the same way that I do about like, say, uh, New Orleans. There's a history here. There's a cuisine here. There is a different language. It's a completely formed, wonderful, rich place. And maybe that's not detachable from all of these things that ail it. But if I ever had any position to talk about this, I feel like I, like I lost it the day that I took that trip down the 401 to Toronto. It's interesting. I mean, you know, we do live in a free speech environment. I mean, Everything that you've been saying is based on experience. It's not, well, you're not speaking, of course, as someone who's investigated this. But I think if you've got sufficient experience and if you can speak to that experience without generalizing, I think you should be allowed to speak of that even if you don't live in Quebec. Otherwise, you know, the range of debate and discourse will be very limited. Perhaps these are not the kinds of conversations that we have enough of in Quebec. I mean, if we can thank Andrew Potter for his, I think, someone misguided article 
you know, maybe starting a discussion, although I haven't seen much so far, but at least this one we're having here, I think is interesting. But is there appetite? Is there interest for uh, this kind of discussion? I definitely, you know, work with people in Toronto and we have these conversations privately, but maybe we should be having them more publicly. Well, I think that's where we should try to steer this as we get to the conclusion of our conversation. Is this worthwhile? Is this conversation and Andrew Potter's, there's such low trust. And I think that the rest of Canada is absolutely guilty of this. Like, what skin do you have in the game? If all you want to do is paint a negative picture, wag your finger and decry uh, whatever resources are going to Quebec or the special status or open up old wounds. Or is there something productive that could happen about subjecting Quebec to this kind of critique, even in the most uh, clumsy way that Potter stumbled into it and perhaps I followed? Is there any kind of silver lining or point to it? Or is it just all heat and no light? I think like one of the problems that is recurrent with these issues when they pop up, it's media people playing amateur sociologist, right? And then on top of that, it's describing societal problems as some kind of character issue. And that's, I think, where people fall into these traps. It's one thing to talk about Quebec being a low-trust society and what effect that has and what the history is and that sort of thing. But when you take that and suggest that people got stuck in their cars because, because of what? You know, if you take an anecdote like that, then you're taking it from sort of an examination of what's going on in the society to what were these individuals doing to not help themselves or not help each other, when in fact it was just a, a systemic screw-up, right? And then when you look at the examples over the years where people have really freaked out, it's often like that. It's a suggestion that you, Quebecer, you, Francophone Quebecer, are doing something to provoke all this. You know, yes, we have a corruption problem in this province. Why do we have a corruption problem? It's because we have a mafia problem. And we have a mafia problem the same way that New York City has a mafia problem and Chicago has a mafia problem. And, you know, it's not because I'm particularly corrupt that the mob thrives in Montreal. It's because they've been here a long time. They're entrenched. There are systems built around them. And rooting that out is a long, hard slog that uh, involves a lot of different institutions being reformed. Like that's always what I try to do when I'm trying to do these think pieces where I'm trying to explain a phenomenon in Quebec. Francophone people who are journalists know this already, you know, and this idea that, oh, you know, McLean's is going to teach us that there's corruption in Quebec when there's been, you know, lots of investigative work being done. It's like they're coming here and telling us, you know, what we already know and telling us also that we're worse than everybody else. You know, it's taken as a direct insult. Yeah, it's hard to know. So do you go there or not? I guess you could just not write a story that's as inflammatory. But come on, you saw what happened with McLean's. They're down to a monthly now. They needed to try something to sell copies. But what's clear is if you just dip in every year or three and write the most negative piece you can... You're not engaging with it in good faith. Where my interest is peaked is that I just, I know that it is so interesting what happens in Quebec on like a weekly level. And it is in a bubble that is completely obscured for most of Canada. And when people say that we don't do a good enough job covering Quebec, it's absolutely true. I'm thinking about it more and more purely from the point of view of a journalist looking for good stories. And there's a wealth of incredible conflict and stories and crime and everything that listeners want to know more about that just never makes it over the border into the rest of Canada. So we're thinking about doing this more regularly. I don't know if I'm talking about once a month on Canada Land or its own podcast, but I'm saying this to our listeners right now. This is a trial weather balloon that I'm floating up. Do you want to hear a show like that? Because uh, I just think it's good content. Well, I know you have a lot of people in Quebec listening to your podcast, so that 
could be interesting as well. And the media dynamic here really is completely different, Jesse. You touched on it, but you know, right now I have one of two all news channels dedicated to basically a province of 8 million people. I Radcan goes outside of the province here and there, but uh, you know, probably 70% of their content is dedicated to Quebec. And on TVA's news uh, channel, LCN, it's closer to 90%. There's just a lot going on all the time. And, and, you know, you talk about media criticism, and one of the reasons these controversies bubble up so much is that media stuff makes the news in this province. Like, in the rest of Canada, there's this sort of inside baseball idea that nobody wants to hear about what's going on at the newspaper or the newscast, but that stuff makes headlines here. The National Assembly Press Gallery is, is quite robust and gets into fights with the government all the time. That gets covered in the news. You know, we have a public inquiry going on right now about protecting journalistic sources. This is all stuff that doesn't happen in the rest of Canada. Very true. Les and Colette, thank you guys so much for talking with me about this so candidly and openly today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Jesse. Thanks for the invitation. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Brand new episode of The Imposter on Wednesday, and I will be back on Thursday with Shortcuts. I make this show with Russell Gregg and Ali Graham. If you like what we do, please support us. 